Pastor Murray Pomatier with a sermon entitled, Is God a Socialist? Good afternoon, everyone, here in Burlington and to everyone online. It's a pleasure to be together again on the Sabbath and get to worship on this most holy day. One month from trumpets. Wow, does time time passes quickly. One disturbing trend that we've seen in recent months, perhaps a year, maybe a little more, is the desire by some to remove historical markers and monuments because these historical figures that were involved in practices that we would rightly deem abhorrent today. Some some examples, a couple of examples. Here in Canada, you recall there was a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald that was removed uh, in the Kingston area because of his in, uh, treatment of the indigenous peoples of Canada. More famously was the statue of uh, Robert E. Lee that was taken down in the South. Uh, Robert E. Lee was the general who led the South in the Civil War, uh, and his statue was taken down because, of of course, that side, the the side of the South, the Confederate States of America, was pro-slavery. Robert E. Lee, in fact, actually wasn't pro-slavery, but he uh, sided with the concept that there were states' rights and his state of Virginia supported the South, so that's why he chose the uh, that side. In fact, Abraham Lincoln offered him the job of the General of the Union Army as well. But this disturbing trend of trying to erase our history to preserve our feelings is something that is is new. It does two things by doing this. It removes these grievous acts from the historical record, which in and of itself prevents learning from our past. It also erases the great acts that some of these men did from our past as well. The incredible life that we lead because some of these leaders had the forethought to give their lives for freedom. They were part of a large group of folks who built these nations of Canada and the United States, this Western world that allow us to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy today, like tearing down monuments. <laughs> the freedom to tear down monuments is built on the back of those whose monuments we tear down, ironically enough. The latest example is what's called the 1619 Project, which is being put on by the New York Times. And in their words, it's an attempt to reframe the country's history based on an understanding the fact of 1619 as the true founding of the United States. Why 1619? This is the first recorded slave ship arriving in America. And in their minds, this is the true founding of America. That sounds intriguing if you stop and think about it. Certainly not the history I've learned. But what it does say, and what's behind it, is that North America was founded not as a bastion of freedom, but specifically to allow for the creation of an economy and culture built on slavery. That's what America was built on. That's completely opposite to what history and what we are taught in schools up until this time. So that's this latest example to rewrite history. 
as being put on by the New York Times. Rewriting the historical records that my feelings are preserved doesn't help me become a better person. It doesn't help me to learn from the mistakes from the past or even to build upon the successes of the past while trying to avoid the same mistakes. What if we did that to the Bible? Consider if we did that to the Bible. Moses was a murderer. In fact, he was an Israelite who found his way into the Egyptian royal household and while hiding his real identity, murdered an Egyptian. Abraham, Jacob, and David were polygamists. Paul persecuted an entire race of people. Should we reconsider their inclusion in the Holy Writ based off of that example? And what would be left of the Holy Writ if we did that? What's left? If you've kept up with the news in recent months, this concept of socialism is becoming more prevalent in the West, and our nations are changing their ways to adopt this philosophy. In fact, elections on both sides of the border are being determined in part on whether we should be moving in this direction. Some potential leaders, in fact, have even said it is the Christian way, that socialism is the Christian way. Interestingly enough, there is a concept called Christian communism and Christian socialism. In recent weeks here, we have heard messages entitled asking the following questions. Is God dead? And is God a racist? We've heard in, in this summer a couple of messages entitled that. What I would like to do today is follow in the footsteps of these messages and ask another question. Is God a socialist? And by doing so, we'll not only answer this question, but we will also discuss why it is important to know the answer. Is God a socialist? It's really important to know that answer. So as we start, what I would like to do is sort of set the groundwork to begin. Let me start by saying this is not a political sermon. Let me, be, let me make it perfectly clear. This is not a political sermon. My purpose is to simply judge the principles of socialism from the Bible, nothing more. Because it is not a political sermon, it will not be a sermon that espouses capitalism or free market economies, which is the opposite of socialism. It won't do that either. We can certainly chat about that outside of the sermon if you wish. We can exchange opinions on that. I certainly would love to do that. And I do have my thoughts on that, but that's not the purpose of this message. This message is meant to focus on the teachings of the Bible. We will not even examine the historical record of socialist countries or countries that have been incorrectly deemed as socialist countries. We'll save that for discussion as well. I will have one text, and it is the Bible. So let's begin with a definition of socialism. I have a couple. The concentration of power into the hands of government elites to achieve the central planning of an economy and radical redistribution of wealth. So I'll repeat that. I'll, I'll repeat that again. The concentration of power, and there may be other, again, there may be other definitions, we're focused on the concentration of power into the hands of government elites to achieve central planning of the economy and radical redistribution of wealth. A second definition is socialism is the theory that social, uh, of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated 
by the community as a whole. I think you get the idea based off of uh, where the, the news reports are going and the political candidates both in the United States and Canada and all of the, the points that come under socialism. I'd like to begin by starting with a section I usually save for the end of a message. I usually, at the end of most messages, we try to have a so what section, or how does this apply? How does, how, how does this apply to me? I usually save that part for the end. Today we're going to start with it. I need you to understand why we're talking about this, so that then we can go into the Bible and break it down. Let's go to John 17, where Brother Ray read from. Why is it important to know whether God is a socialist or advocates socialist principles or not? John 17. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 8. Again, coming at the end of the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples and soon-to-be apostles, he then turns his gaze to heaven and prays in front of them. Jesus spoke these words in verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. We sang in the first hymn about God's chosen people in the chosen land. Here, Christ here is praying to God about eternal life that we sh- that God has given to Christ to give to as many as God has given to him. And this is eternal life, Christ continues, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the key to this passage in understanding what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing the Father and knowing Christ in a deep, passionate way so that you can develop your relationship with him. We've covered that in so many ways. But just for purposes here of this message, that verse is key here. But then the passage continues and expands upon why that is important. Why is it important to know God and to know Christ? He continues in verse 4, I have finished, I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you have given to me, me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and that I have believed that you sent me. So, encapsulated in verse 3 is that eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ and knowing God the Father. Expanding upon that is to know why they exist, what they have for us, that God sent Christ to this earth to die for our sins so that we could find a way back into the, the covenant people, that we could, we, could, we could participate in this covenant God had with Abraham for redemption. Our participation in the glory of God that Christ now shares with him and wants to share with us depends upon us knowing the Father. And we see that being the definition of eternal life. And we need to pass this on. We need to believe this, but we also need to pass this on 
to the next generation of disciples. Consider this as you contemplate knowing the Father and knowing Jesus Christ. Consider this possibility. Every day you wake up as an individual. So you wake up from your your bed. You wake up to newspapers, radio, and TV, all telling lies about a parent or a grandparent who is no longer with us. Not only are you bombarded with this daily, but your kids are too. Your kids have never met your parent or your grandparent. But they're bombarded with this news about your parent or your grandparent, all these lies. Someone they've never met, and all they hear are others distorting the truth about them. Would you stand by and not say anything to them? Or would you tell them the truth so that they had both sides? This is why we need to know whether God is a socialist or not. Because we need to know him. We need to be able to pass on his truth to the next generation. So that we can know and the next generation can know. And that we can continue to pass that on. That's what's so wrong with some of these things like the 1619 Project. Sure, let's talk about the abhorrent practices of slavery. They were. No one can deny that. But let's be sure we talk about all of them. A complete understanding of the entire history of the practice, of this terrible, terrible practice. And let's not distort the truth in a historical record along the way. My feelings will be just fine, I promise. They will be just fine. Let's go to John 8. Look at a second reason why we need to know whether God is a a socialist or a purveyor of socialist principles or not. John 8, and this is another concept that we've heard many, many times recently, but it applies here too, and one we can't forget. And we we continue to hear these principles conveyed to us time and time again because it's easy to forget. Verse 42 to 47 of John 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Back to verse 42. If God were your God, you would love me. If God were your God is truth. Knowing who God is, Understanding who he is is a, is a truth concept. If we believed that, if we believed that truth, it would affect our actions and we would then love him. And we would love, we would practice what he tells us to practice. On the flip side, if we don't, God knows based on our actions, he works backwards, that we are then of our father, the devil. Because as we've heard time and time and time again, truth guides behavior and it does, does both ways. Being of God will will affect and guide our behavior in the right way. 
If our behavior is in the wrong way, it tells God where our mind is with respect to truth. Again, these are whose side we are on depends on our knowledge and our belief in who God is. So why it is important to know that God is dead, that God is not dead, that God is not a racist, and that God is not a socialist? Because knowing God is eternal life, and truth guides behavior. Two principles that we are, again, very familiar with, and don't tire of hearing them because I promise you we'll continue to address them. It's important to do so. But they answer the question why it is important to know if God is a socialist. Consider the ramifications if we get it wrong. If we get it wrong, we convey untruths. If we convey untruths, we, we allow for and encourage bad behavior. If we get this wrong, consider those ramifications. So that's why we're going to talk about this today. Let's move forward now and look at some scriptures that have been misinterpreted by socialists, by those who, Christian communists, Christian socialists, folks who believe that God is a socialist or conveys socialist thoughts. We'll begin first in Genesis 3 because it is all about, again, another word we hear about, deception. Let's begin in Genesis 3. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Again, an account here you're quite familiar with. Verse 1 begins, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. This was the original deception. And what he's saying here is, and keep in mind the scriptures we read in John, what he's saying is God isn't who he said he was. God isn't who he said he was. God told you this. That's not true. That's not quite true. Again, this is where Satan comes. That's why it's important that we know who God is, what he stands for, what he conveys, what he teaches, because we must know who God, our our eternal life depends on that fact. You've heard of that famous tenet by Karl Marx, from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs. That's a basic socialist tenet. From each according to his abilities, from those who have, to each according to those their needs, those who have not. That sounds good. That sounds Christian, if you think about it. Without context, that, that message, from each, those who have a lot, to those who have little. That sounds Christian. Let's go to Acts 2. We've got a, a few examples of where those who believe in the, these socialist tenets, go to the Bible Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 
This, of course, is at the end of the Pentecost, following Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the one where the Holy Spirit was provided on mass and in a greater way than it had before. Verse 44 says, talking about the group of believers afterwards, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That's a really good Christian concept. Put our stuff together, we'll split it all up, and as anyone had needs, has need, we'll divide it. That is part and parcel. That is one of the scriptures that socialists go to to say that God and say that Jesus Christ was a socialist. Let's go to Acts 4. Acts 4. See another one. Acts 4, verses 34 and 35. Luke writes, nor was, there any, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Again, practicing that same principle that we read back in Acts 2, distributed to anyone that had need. And then finally, and we'll circle back on this, I promise, but let's, let's look at these as the, the, the misinterpretations first. Matthew chapter 20. We'll go to a parable here that is often cited to say that Jesus was a socialist. We won't, for time's sake, we won't read the entire parable. It's obviously introduced in verse 1 of Matthew 20. We'll read verses 8 to 14. But the landowner that went out to hire a bunch of laborers and agreed with each of them to pay them a set fee, a denarius. So they get through their day, and as, as, you, see, as you see throughout the day, folks came and went at different hours of the day and signed on, some at the fourth hour, the fifth hour, the eleventh hour, and all signed on to work for the same denarius. Regardless of start time, they worked their day, and the fee was the same. Verse 8 says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. So recall, he starts with the last. So the one who just showed up, gets paid a denarius. And you've got the folks that are sitting there since 4 o'clock in the morning getting the same denarius that this guy that just showed up received. Verse 10, But when the first came, they assumed, they supposed, that they would receive more. And they likewise received a denarius. And they would received it, they were quite happy in the morning to have signed this contract for a denarius. But circumstances change, and now they're upset. When they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day? But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this to the last man the same as you. This sounds, when you take into account this parable, 
Acts 2, Acts 4, this sounds like the more enlightened way. It seems fair. We all can live off a denarius, so let's all have a denarius. Let's forget about when you started or how much work you've done or how little I've done. Absent of context, absent of context, and that's another concept we keep hammering away at, I could make the case for socialism based on these three scriptures. But let's get some context. So let's get some context. Let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. We'll read verses 28 to 30. Again, we've covered many of these scriptures in different ways. Today we're looking at them, put your lenses on of socialism, and I want you to view them through those lenses. Verse 28, and God blessed them, male and the, the, his male and female creation, Adam and the woman. Adam and woman, not the woman, Adam and woman at this point. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. His very first command is take care of the land and take care of my creation. I'm putting it under your care. If you've ever taken care of land or or animals, there's some work involved. Let's go to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. We are, we were just in Genesis 3. We were talking about the, the deception of the serpent. He now conveys, God now conveys to them, the serpent, the woman, and Adam, his punishment. Verse 15, we'll read verses 15 through 19. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So God prescribed work at the very beginning. They chose to go a different way, and God didn't change his expectations, because he never does. His expectations are what they are. Here, he made it a little more difficult. We're going to have to work a little bit harder. You're going to, through the sweat, you have to, through thistles and thorns, and all of these things. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. It will require even more effort on the part of man to live, 
to, to, to exist, to raise his food, to, and to exist that way. So we're seeing some concept right from the beginning that work is required to eat. Let's go to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. And this is all context for these scriptures that seem to say that Jesus is a socialist. Leviticus 23. We'll read verse only verse 22. This comes at the part of the the explanation to the children of Israel, to God's covenant people of the holy days that they were to keep. Verse 22, coming to the end of the Feast of Weeks, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. Leave the corners of the field for the poor. This is God's way of helping us look after each other. If you are a landowner, reap the rewards of your land, but leave the corners for those who are without. Now, does he say, pick the corners and just leave them outside in a basket for them to come along and take? Or does he say, leave them, and whoever wants to do the work can can glean of them. We see this law that is prescribed for us here in Leviticus 23 at play in Ruth, the story of Ruth, chapter 2. And we see that at play here. So we leave the corners of the field. What do we do with the corners of the field? Were the, were the servants of the landowner to collect it all and put it in a basket and leave it all out free, free corn, free wheat, free potatoes, free beans, We'll read verses 1 through 6 of Ruth 2 to get the answer. There was a relative of Naomi, Naomi's husband. Now, we recall Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. Ruth and a lady by the name of Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah. That's, in fact, that's why she was named that. The, uh, the, the uh, birth certificate had the, had the change, which is why her name is Oprah. But uh, Ruth and Orpah married brothers uh, of, the, of the man Elimelech. Elimelech was married to Naomi. You know, you know the story. The brothers died. Elimelech died. So now the two sisters, or the two sisters-in-law, were with Naomi. Orpah goes back to her people. Naomi stays, or Ruth stays with Naomi and goes back with, Na- with Naomi to her people. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after, after him who in whose sight I may find favor. So clearly this is a well-known and well-practiced law. Ruth knew that she had, as a poor woman, she had the, the it was within her right to go to a gleaned field and collect from the corners. And she said to her, go my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. So this is important too. There's a process. The one who does the work and owns the land and has all of this was able to collect his own his own proceeds and his own his own his own uh, food, just to leave the corners. So after the reapers were all done, 
And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So we see also the, the work that Ruth had to put in. God provided the opportunity, but Ruth had to put in the work. And it seems that it, it, took, it took quite a bit of work here. She was continued from morning until now and only rested just a little bit. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field. No, go from here, but stay close by my young woman. And we know the story continues that then Boaz, or Boaz took her in, went through the, the rights that were, were available to take this woman as a wife, and then she became part of the lineage of David and then of Jesus Christ. But the point here is that God provides an opportunity for those without to work for their own food. At least he did in the, this agricultural um, economy that was present in early biblical times. Let's go to Deuteronomy 26. Because holy living is about taking care of the poor. God is not an ogre. He's just not a socialist. God is a loving, merciful, caring God. He just doesn't, as we're going to see, convey socialist principles. But that doesn't mean you have to be a socialist to be loving, merciful, and care for people. Deuteronomy 26, verses 12 through 15. Part of the the tithing uh, part of the economy here that is described for the second generation of Israelites before they cross into the promised land so that they had a full grasp of God's expectations in their new land, the land they were to care for. Verse 12 begins, When you have finished laying aside all of the increase of your tithe in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house, and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all of your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for any unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. So we've followed the laws, we've followed the, God's expectations, and have obeyed the voice of my Lord and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this was another way that God provided for Israel to take care of the poor. Today, we won't get into it. This isn't the point to get into a discussion on tithing. But today, we have a, a large amount of taxes that have a rather good social safety net that helps us take care of the poor in this day and age. But we see, as we walk through Scripture, the how God felt about taking care of the poor. Let's go to Proverbs 6. Proverbs chapter 6.
and we'll see the work ethic that God expects from all of his people. If you can, you should follow this. If you have the ability to work in whatever way we see here. Verse 6, Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. What this is really talking about is the need to put in a little effort to provide for yourself rather than sitting up with your legs up and expecting everybody to give of their hard work to provide for you. This doesn't mean you have to go get a job. This means we have to help look after ourselves along the way. This is what God God's expectations were. We go to, we don't really have time, but let's go to Proverbs 31. I think we got a little bit of time. These wisdom books that God provides for us, and incidentally we are going, we just finished the first book of Psalms in the Wednesday Bible study, so we're taking a break for a few weeks, and then we'll go back to the second book of Psalms, beginning in Psalm 42. But let's go to Psalm 30, or Proverbs 31, look at another piece of wisdom relative to work ethic, and continue to look at this concept of socialism. And we just, we won't take time to read all 22 verses here, but when you read through here, this is an industrious woman. This is a woman who works hard for her family and a family that works hard for her too. Let's not miss that point. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchant. We'll bounce around here a little bit. Um, Verse 15, she also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. So again, she's not even just providing for her family. She's providing for those who work for her too, her what we call maidservants. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and, yet, yes, reaches out her hands to the needy. This is all part and parcel. This is not just looking after yourself. This is looking after those who can't help themselves. But we see here that the work ethic that is espoused by God in his holy scriptures. Let's go to Luke 12. We'll make our way over into the New Testament now. Again, what we're doing is we're getting context to help explain those scriptures we read in Acts and Matthew. Luke 12. We'll read verses 15 through 26 specifically. And these parables here are meant to teach many things beyond and way beyond what I'm going to use them for today. But for today, let's look at them again through this lens of discussing this concept called socialism and restrict ourselves in, in the understanding here to, to that concept for just for today. 
beginning in verse 15. And he said to them, now let's go back to verse 13. Then one one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made you a judge or an arbitrator over you? We'll get to that a little. Actually, we're going to come back to that a little bit later. That's why I wanted to start in 15. And he said to them in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not exist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build, build great, and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then whose will then whose will those be things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they, have neither, they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you're not able to, to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? We cannot earn salvation. So we cannot earn salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. We cannot earn it. But God's system rewards effort. Let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. We cannot earn sal- salvation; it is a gift from God. But God's system rewards effort. God's system rewards effort. Second Thessalonians three. We'll read verses 10 through 12. We're getting into some concepts here in these last, not these last couple of verses, but these next two verses that Paul conveys to us that really get to the heart of the message that we're trying, that, that we're trying to convey here, that we're trying to grasp. Verse 10 through 12 of 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some among who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So as we see here, this, this concept here, familiar concept from God, that if we don't work, we don't eat. Tough language from God, 
but let's let's follow through these concepts through the context that that we're that we're working with here. Interestingly enough, what we also see is this talk isn't talking about not taking care of those who can't help themselves. It's talking about addressing folks who can take care of themselves but are not being productive. And we see this word busybodies. And really this, these busybodies are busy being unproductive, causing problems, causing issues, causing grief, but not really being very productive in their productive years. And we see Paul expands upon this in, in 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. Let's go there. We'll read verses 3 through 16 here. And as we go through this, note how all-encompassing Paul's teaching is here. He seems to cover most scenarios in the situation that he's going to talk about here. It, it's going to start off, it's going to sound a little harsh, but recall here what we're doing here. We're going through this context to address this concept of these socialistic principles. Verse 3 will begin. Honor widows who are really widows. That's some straightforwardness from Paul. What does he mean, who are really widows? If you're, if you're married and your husband has died, you're a widow. What does Paul mean by this? And we'll let Paul, we'll let Paul explain for himself. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone. So recall, and we're going to get into some of this a little bit later, but recall that part and parcel of the Christian teaching is to take care of the widows and the orphans. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to take care of the widows? Paul here says, honor widows who are true widows. First and foremost, and this is God's concept, recall that uh, the foundation of, of, of God's creation is based on marriage and family as the foundation. So here what God is saying is first and foremost, before burdening others, if you have children and grandchildren that can help take care of you from, from the very basics of your family, let them come first. Take care of yourself within your family. If you have a widow in your family and you are able to work, it is incumbent upon you to take care of that widow in your family. This is good and acceptable before God. Now, she was really a widow and left alone, so a widow who has no family, who has no children or grandchildren, who are able to take care of her, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Again, tying in this concept of who who are you following? Are you following God? Are you you trying to, to... Seek help in a pious, in a in a in a, in a, a merciful way, but living a life that is not godly on the outside. Paul here covers all of these options, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under sixty years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, and if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, Paul says. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation 
because they've cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies. Remember what we read back in Second Thessalonians, saying things which they are which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. And we're seeing all these these concepts come in here. This is not just about Paul dictating who gets what, but he's trying to teach these godly concepts that if you are of a a working age, you should work hard to provide for yourself. While you while you can, you should do. If you have family, family takes care of family first. While you are productive, don't be about being a busybody, being unproductive, causing grief, causing angst within the congregation, within your family, and then expect to tap into godly principles at the end of your life when you haven't lived by godly principles throughout your entire life. This obviously, if repentance comes in, that's a whole other concept. We're not going to, we're not. Let's not get down in the weeds there. But we see here, Paul. Paul takes on a tough tough topic here and faces it head on and covers all of these these various possibilities and it's all about and we see down here in verse 15 in verse 14 all about not giving an opportunity to the devil to be deceived part of this all goes back to genesis and all these same principles all follow through for some have already turned aside after satan and if any believing man or woman has widows let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who really are widows. There's only so much to go around. Paul and God understands that. And he understands the heart of a Christian is to take care of as many people as we can. It is incumbent upon us when we do to do so with wisdom, following this, the, the, the scriptural outline here. Real widowhood. Look at these principles. Real widowhood. Family first giving an effort while you're able, not being a burden to the church. These are all principles that we, we see throughout the Bible come, coming through here and, and coming together in this concept of how we look after one another. That's the context for the scriptures we read back in Acts and Matthew. And Satan is certainly adept at deception, wanting to tell us who God is and who God isn't. When we have the formula right here, where God tells us who he is. I said I wouldn't go into the historical account. Allow me to backtrack on that just a little and share a story that you may already be familiar with. And it's the example of the Plymouth Rock settlers. I think I've mentioned this in the last year or so. The example of the Plymouth Rock settlers. That was 1620, not 1619, who began in the Massachusetts area with an eye towards splitting up, dividing up the, the land. So many, so many families came. They, they tried to divide up the land very evenly. They tried to, uh, they were together going to farm the land. And at the end of the year, they were going to bring all their produce together in co-op style. And the group could use what it would need from the collective. So we're all going to farm. We're going to bring all of our stuff together. And we'll just divide it up amongst the group. That lasted one year. One year. Because that produced laziness. Well, I'm not going to work that hard because look at these three or four families over here killing themselves. Look at all that they're making. If we're just going to divide it up, I'll take whatever I can get. I'll take, I don't need to put in the work. Whatever I get, that'll be enough. I'll make that work and I can, I don't have to work that hard. 
This created doers and leeches, and they were forced to they were forced to abandon that collective process in one year because of the bad behavior this produced amongst people that couldn't wait to get out of England and went through all of the the trials and, and tribulations of crossing crossing the Atlantic Ocean to come here, and then they became all about themselves in one year. Let's go back based off of the scriptures we just went through from Genesis through to Timothy. Let's go back and look at these scriptures we looked at here. Let's go back to Acts 2. We'll read verses 42 through 47. Again, to get the full context, also in light of what we've read. Verse 42. Obviously, this is coming at the, as we said before, this is coming at the end of the first Pentecost. There were 3,000 souls added to the body. And they continued in verse 42, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So they were busy building the body of Christ and busy looking after one another. When we go back to verse 44 and we see they had all things in common. This is the Greek word hapas, and it means the whole. They had the whole in common. So a couple of possibilities here. A couple of possibilities. This could mean, could mean that it goes all the way back to verse 1 about being in one accord. That as they're busy studying and the, the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, that they were all of one mind and of one accord. They had the whole in common. They had the whole in common. Or perhaps it does mean we'll share. Perhaps it does mean that they're talking about their physical items that they're more than willing to share. But when you read this here, it seems to expand upon, in the same sentence, their belief system. Now all who believed were together and had the whole in common. They had the whole in common. It seems to at least expand upon their common beliefs that were mentioned previously, which allowed for them to gather together and to eat and pray and study because they were of one mind. But perhaps it does mean we'll share. There's no, there's, there's, we, we could, I can see both in there. But it doesn't say they sold all their things and split it up evenly. It said where there was need, what it's, they divided them among all as anyone had need. Where there was a need, they would share. They, were, they, could, they could sell their things, sell their possessions, and could divide them among everyone as there was need. And again, that's part and parcel of this whole concept of agape in the body, looking after one another, taking care of one another, but as there was need. But again, keeping in mind all of these other concepts that God and Christ have conveyed to us through Scripture. I'm sure we'll talk about that in the after-sermon discussion. Let's go to Acts 4. Same concept here, Acts 4, we read verses 34 through 35. 
Let's go back to verse 32. And again, we get the same concept that this part and parcel. Remember we talked about truth driving behavior? When you have a common set of beliefs, it leads to common behavior and looking after one another. And part and parcel of this commonality was their belief system. We see this back in verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed were his own, and they had all things in common. So they were their possessions, but I'm more than willing to share. I'm more than willing to share. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Among who? The apostles. They were busy out there preaching this this gospel, conveying this message of this great Lord Jesus and his resurrection. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they, the apostles, distributed to each one as has need. Again, same concept, but again, it starts with the mindset. It starts with being one of one mind, of one accord, of being one in Christ. That leads to this idea that, I'll share. Sure. I've got no issue sharing of looking after each other. If I've got something, you're welcome to it. So they understood there would be needs, but they trusted also here. They trusted the apostles to distribute as anyone had need. They trusted the wisdom of leadership to determine how anyone had need. We have that place, that place here in the CGI, here in Canada. There's an assistance fund approved by the board, but distributed by those in need with review by the ministry. Also, if you if we don't have time to even go down to open this rabbit this uh, rabbit hole or dive into this rabbit hole, but it partly led in Acts six to the creation of the diaconate, because as the apostles were busy trying to distribute what people had need, they found this is too much work, so there was an opportunity here to care for the neglected widows, as it says in Acts six, by raising up another group of people to take care of that. Matthew chapter 20. We'll go back to what we read here. This one denarius, it doesn't matter how long you've worked, but Christ here says, it doesn't matter how long you work, everybody gets the same pay. The context for this is verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like... And then he tells a story to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. As I said, when we read this, I said there's, we've covered these scriptures in many other ways to talk about the covenant people and what all of this means. So I'm not, I don't want to, for this, the point of this message, dig down into that. I wanted to look at the scripture from the concept of how the socialist purveyors look at it. And the context here is the kingdom of heaven and what it is like. And it's like a landowner with this gift, this having people work for this gift. It is also the context. Let's go down to verse. We stopped in verse 14. Verse 14 says, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this to the last man, the same as to you. Then Christ asked this question to the landowner, asked this question. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your evil eye because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first shall be last, and many are called, but few are chosen. The gift of eternal life is God's to distribute as he deems fit. 
and our mission and our ability, our, our desire to attain eternal life, while we do this collectively, while we walk this journey together, and we've covered that in Philippians and other places, it is my relationship with God for this gift that he wants to give me that I'm responsible for. And it matters not when you come into your journey. If you come into the journey three weeks before Christ returns and you are a, you have given your life to Christ and you are a full-fledged part of the first fruits, we get the same gift, and that is eternal life. So to take this this story that Christ is using to explain eternal life and to say that Christ was a socialist, which is what they use, they use one of these descriptions as socialist, is to completely take it out of context. Putting all the, of the biblical record together, it seems pretty clear, it seems pretty clear that neither God nor Christ are socialists. They don't have a socialist mentality. I'd like to look at one other concept here, and that is this concept that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil. The money is the root of all evil. Many of you are shaking your head. That's because you're good students of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say specifically that money is the root of all evil. But for those who believe that capitalism is wrong, socialism is a good thing, they stick to that, that biblical account. But they never actually open the scriptures and see what it actually says. So before we close, I'd like to have a quick discussion on this concept that money is the root of all evil. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 10, for the love, the love of money is a root of all evil. The love of money is a root. There are many, many ways to be evil. We can, we don't have time to walk through them all. We could, we could spend the entire Feast of Tabernacles, every sermon talking about roots of evil. But Paul here says the love of money is a root of all evil. But then again, to get properly understand this entire concept, let's not just pull out half a sentence from the Bible. Let's get the context here. We'll go back to verse 6. And again, this whole concept, this whole passage here is talking about greed. It's talking about greed. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You can be godly and content with a lot of money, you can be godly and content with no money. The amount of money you have, whether you're a rich person, a poor person, middle class, that has no bearing here. The, the concepts here are godliness and contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire... These, the words here are specific. Paul uses specific words here. Those who desire to be rich, that conveys a first love type of desire. And that can't be our first love. Those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation and snare. Not sin, but but those who desire to be rich can be tempted and snared. What happens when you're tempted and snared? That's the, that that next. What what are your actions go once you are tempted and snared? This doesn't say he's sinned yet. It doesn't say he's fallen prey to it yet. It just says that if you desire to be rich, you open yourself up to temptation and traps. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Paul is saying the historical record, the biblical record is clear. The Your, your own historical record. So many people have come and gone that have fallen into these traps and and were and drowned and couldn't couldn't keep God's way at the top of at the, the forefront of the of their their action. Then he says, and harmful lust which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is the the biblical concept we're going to. We're going to unpack this just for a few minutes here. The love of money that causes you to become ensnared and then, and then allows you or, or is the basis for you to stray from your faith and to put money first before God. So money's not wrong. Having money's not wrong. What is your first love in relation to money and riches? This word for lo- love of money is the Greek word philagiria. And it's only used three times. It's used as an adjective here to describe the love of money. And then two other locations, it's used to describe lovers of money. Only those three times. And it's meant to convey that we have an English word that would be very equivalent, and that is the word avarice. Avarice, A-V-A-R-I-C-E. And it means the extreme greed for wealth or material gain. That is the difference. The love to have an extreme greed to have that be your sole focus. I'll come keep the Sabbath. Or I'll follow God's law. But not if it interferes with my extreme passion for greed and wealth. Let's go to Matthew 6. Christ covered this principle in his opening address to the disciples. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He covers this here. Verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. The church, to the church of Revelation, Christ called that your first love. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, where is your heart? We can go into other scriptures. You know, you cannot serve God and mammon. We must make a choice. We can't serve both. Let's go back to Luke 12. I wanted to cover a couple of verses there in relation to this concept of Riches. Verses 13 through 15. 
Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made, you, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This is the biblical concept and relate how our minds should be, how our hearts should be relative to wealth. That it's secondary. Completely secondary. God comes first in all that we do. And again, truth drives behavior. Where our heart is will be, will reflect where our minds are at. There's a two, there's a twofold concept here that we see here. Two, two things I'd like to discuss. Man who first is verse 14. Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? Over you, at face value, this actually looks like a clear swipe against enforced redistribution. The man is saying, "Christ, you tell him, you're 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 the Christ. You tell him, or this is the parable here. You, you tell him, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's not that's that's not under my that's not in my wheelhouse." Christ says. So a, a clear swipe against enforced redistribution. But it hits at the same principle, and he expands upon that in verse 15. That our minds must not be about covetousness. Our first love must be God, following his ways. And the rest take let the rest take care of itself. The last concept here is the concept of fairness. I don't have a scripture to turn to to discuss fairness, because I can't find that concept in the Bible. But I want to address fairness. Because fairness is part and parcel of the socialist agenda. So I wish I had a scripture to turn to, but I have none because I can't find it. If you can find one, please tell me. Please tell me. And please, we can share. But it's not a biblical concept, so I can't actually cover it scripturally. Only to say that it isn't in there. Justice is in there. Mercy is in there. Righteousness is in there. Humility is in there. Industriousness is in there. All biblical concepts. But fairness is not, because it's not equality of outcome that, that is under our purview. It is equality of opportunity. We all have the same shot. It's what we do with that shot that counts. The teachings of socialism are not scriptural. God is not a socialist. Jesus Christ was not a socialist. They couldn't be. They love people too much to be socialists. Socialism seeks to remove personal responsibility, to punish hard work, and to reward sloth and laziness. God couldn't be a socialist. Jesus couldn't be a socialist. Being a disciple of Christ requires effort, hard work, and focus. It also involves... Make no mistake, it also involves helping those who cannot help themselves, giving others a hand up, extending love and mercy to others. But these aren't socialist ideas. They are godly maxims because they come with responsibility on the part of the givers and the receivers. Most importantly, knowing that God and Jesus Christ are not socialists, helps guide our behavior. It helps teach us what we need to do. That while we, while we are able, we, we put in an effort. We put an effort for God. 
We put in, a, in an effort to love each other. We put an effort to take care of each other, to contribute where we can, to not be a burden on the church where we don't need to be, to understand the concept of family first, that before we burden anybody else, the family takes care of each other. We see that concept physically. We extend that concept spiritually. Filter what you hear and read and watch through the lens of Scripture, and you will not be deceived because Satan is all about deception. Satan wants you confused about who God is. Satan wants you to believe that Jacob and David and Abraham were polygamists and and not patriarchs of God who were human beings, who sinned and made wrong decisions, but gave themselves and repented and gave themselves back over to God. To Paul, who certainly was persecuted Christians, but was driven to his knees in repentance and became a, 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 an incredible servant of God. So God is not dead. God is not a racist. And he's not a socialist. You know what else he is not? He's also not a globalist. But more on that next time. What I will do is I'll have you now rise. We will close this message and say goodbye to our friends online, our brothers and sisters who joined us, and then we'll turn the service back over to Pastor Adrian. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this Sabbath day, for this time that we get to spend with you in your presence. We ask you to accept us into your presence. We thank you for the miracle today of technology that allows us to gather with our brothers and sisters from around your magnificent globe, this jewel of a creation that you gave to us to take care of. We thank you for this opportunity to to share your word, to look into it and to hear what's going on around us, but to filter everything through the lens of your Bible, to not be tossed to and fro, but to be confident in your word, to know that the answers we need, we can find in your word, that we follow you at all times. We ask you to strengthen us in these times. We ask you to help us to give us wisdom, to filter what we hear and what we read and what we study and what we watch and all that we are are bombarded by, and to know that we can have peace and calm in the answers in your in your word that you have given us your word to live by, to study. Please give us that desire to stay faithful, to stay true to this, to understand who you are so that we may partake of the glory that you shared with Jesus Christ. We look forward to your holy days, which are a month away now. We thank you for that insight, that knowledge, that the mercy that you've extended to us to allow us to celebrate that, to worship you in that way. Please allow us to prepare ourselves for that. Please allow our, our brethren here far and wide to do so. As we close this, we ask you to bring this part of our service to a close, to go with our brothers and sisters who will now depart from us, continue to let them have a blessed, edifying, and meaningful Sabbath day. And we just thank you for truth. We thank you for all that it means to us. We thank you for all that it has done for us. And we just look forward to the gift of eternal life that is there waiting for us if we stay the course. 
We thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you both have done for us. And we ask it in his name. All these things we pray. Amen.